Welcome to the Forge Leadership Podcast. Last week we heard from Kendall Cowfelt, and this week we're joined by his wife Bev, who is a senior program manager in Samaritan's Purse, Liberia. In a very moving interview, Bev shares the deep emotions of living through the Ebola crisis and not knowing whether she would live or die, and how this has shaped her identity. So, uh, welcome to the Forge Leadership Podcast. Today, we're joined by Bev Cowfold. Bev uh, works for Samaritan's Purse uh, in Liberia. Last week, we listened to her husband, Kendall, talking about um, his experiences of leadership and the Ebola crisis in Liberia. Uh, Bev, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Simon. Cool. So you're sat in Monrovia today, is that right? It's a public holiday and uh, you're speaking to us. Where, where, describe where you're speaking to us from. Um, yes, it is, a, it is a public holiday today and I'm in the office. Uh, it's beautiful, sunny and warm. I spent some time on the beach today. So wow. yeah, it's just gorgeous today. <laughs> It's cold here in the UK <laughs> in winter. <laughs> I'm feeling jealous. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> hey, listen, what made you want to go and work in Liberia in the first place? Um, why leave the comfort of being brought up in Canada and, and go and live in West Africa? Um, I've been working with Samaritan's Purse since 1999 and just really felt that this is the type of work that God wanted me to do. And so really it wasn't about coming to Liberia it really was more about going overseas anywhere. I was honestly willing to go anywhere. Before Liberia, I'd worked in Central and South America, I'd worked in Asia, I worked in um, Angola, Kenya, Uganda, Benin, so I'd worked literally everywhere. And I just loved the work. And I really felt that God was, well, I didn't even feel, I just knew um, that this is what God wanted me to do. And when the opportunity came up for, for Kendall for uh, Liberia, um, again, I knew a little bit about the country, but it was more for me just about going overseas. And what, what was it? What was the bug about going overseas? How did that get in, inside you <laughs> early on? I think it was always there. Um, I honestly believe that, at least for me, um, it's something that God planted in me probably yeah. from the day I was born because I was always on the go, my mom says. Um, <laughs> And uh, growing up where I grew up in the far north of Canada, in the Yukon, it was very adventuresome. Um, mm -hmm. And roughing it was no big deal, like digging my own okay. latrine hole or having uh -huh. to get, you know, having no electricity. It never bothered me because that's how I grew up. But I also was um, brought up by a family that is just incredibly serving within the church, within their community. Always had people over, always had the homeless over. And I think that really influenced me a lot to be... Uh, because it became second nature, and I didn't understand actually why other people didn't do it. And so I think that always was there through a little bit of nurture, a little bit of nature probably. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I grew up as a kid of the 80s, you know, Ethiopian uh, famine, of course, and that's when media really started to show other parts of the world and, and the struggles and the suffering of this world. Uh, and so I think that started to open my eyes as a young child and just, again, being brought up in the home I was brought up in. Um, my first experience overseas was with my husband, Kendall, who grew up in Africa, very different from me. And, you know, I remember going to Kenya in 1994 and seeing kids eating out of garbage for the first time in my life. And I was just like, this is just not right. And it was more than just that, oh, you know, uh, social conscience thing it was a deep felt like this is not right like a, a just a moment of almost morality in a sense of like 
you know. Um, and so from that point on, I really believe it, that that first seed that was planted when I was younger all of a sudden began to find that fertile soil and make those cracks. Um, and then which, you know, um, in 1999, five years later, it took a while and I had to be very patient and wait on the Lord. Um, having that opportunity as an intern after Hurricane Mitch to go to Honduras with SP Canada. Uh, it just, everything in my internship, um, the work that I did doing clean water biosand filters, everything, even though I'm not a wash person per se, I was able to learn. Um, but at the same time, um, I also experienced a lot of hardship in just living overseas, uh, being carjacked at gunpoint, getting sick, being homesick all those things and it just felt like God was preparing saying your work will go well but there's a personal price and there always will be um, and I look back at that time in all honesty as God affirming but also giving me a taste of what it would be like now of course I could never have imagined what the next you know 18 years um, yeah. would hold but I always look back to that point as God affirming but at the same time revealing isn't it incredible how God uses even our upbringing and uh, the environment in which we're upbringing to prepare us for uh, the life of service that he's, he's calling us to? And um, what better preparation for Liberia than having no electricity and bad roads? Yeah, <laughs> um, what do you love about Liberia as a, as a country? You know, you've been there nearly 13 years now. What have you come to love about it? You know, I was just down in, in um, our base in Fishtown in, in River G. I think, Sam, you've been there. And I was talking with the, sta the staff and we were talking about the elections and I said, you know, I know I'm not Liberian, but I love this country. And I love this country because it's the same reason I love you as my staff, because there's so much potential. And if, if you allow God to use that potential, and if you yourself can believe that you have the potential, this country could be incredible and I, I think that's what I love about it the most is that there's so much potential um, and there's a satisfaction of personally when we're working with staff and they all of a sudden realize that they have potential and they also realize that it's okay to have potential and want to dream big because you have people behind you but more importantly you have the Lord um, and for so long, you know, the people of Liberia have gone through conflict or they've been told that they're nothing or that they're a country boy or they're, they're just a girl child so they don't have any rights or you're not important. Um, and I think that's what I love about Liberia the most. It's also the most frustrating thing about Liberia. <laughs> but um, I think that's why I just, I love this country is that there's so much potential and it's so exciting to see it when it's, when it starts to move um, because you know that it's God. Yeah, do you spend quite a bit of your time talking to people about what the future could be like or what their future could be like? And, and how do you go about that, doing that in a way that's aspirational? Yeah, um, I guess it's mostly the staff that I work with um, as part of the senior programs office. You know, I'm working with program managers, sector managers and you know, trainers and everything like that. And I want them to know, regardless of their position, you know, they have the potential um, to, to be more with the, the talents and gifts that God's given them. And so I'll do different things. Some of them are very formal and intentional. 
Um, yeah. Like I did a, a leadership um, little seminar um, on Fridays, uh, just for a few Fridays, two groups at a time, no more than 20 people, just to be very intentional to talk about that, to talk about how in leadership you first have to lead yourself and be responsible for your own actions and lead you before you can think about leading others. And what does that mean in, in a Liberian context? Mm. You know, it means just because people say you're something doesn't mean you have to believe it. Whether it's an Ebola survivor or anything like that, like don't let your past dictate who God wants you to be in the future. Mm. So there's those of formal opportunities, but then the informal opportunities just come, you know, when staff walk in the office and you start talking and, you know, they have questions or anything like that. And just using those opportunities all the time to take the time for those relationships. Um, looking away from my computer when they're talking to me yeah. and yeah. being yeah. fully yeah. engaged in listening. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I know those, are the, those will be the moments that I miss whenever I do leave Liberia. No, someone once said to me, you know, all I need from you as a leader is your attention. I just need you to look me in the eyes and, and, and focus on me because actually nobody else does, you know? Yeah, very much. Especially nowadays with, you know, smartphones and everything like that, we're constantly holding conversations as we're scrolling down our phone. And I, don't, I think there's nothing more, more rude. Um, and as leaders, we need to be better examples. Yeah. And what projects are you personally involved in at the moment, Bev? And uh, what does your program look like? And what, what impact do you have in, in Liberia right now as Samaritan's Purse? Well, we have a senior programs manager, Lisa, who I think you know, Simon, and then I'm the assistant senior programs manager. And so I oversee anything that is funded by an SP uh, IHQ or SP affiliate office. She oversees externals, but everything still passes through Lisa. Um, and so we have uh, water and sanitation projects, we have our active fellowship sports ministry projects, literacy, um, we also have our uh, HIV AIDS program, we have a, I guess it would be an agricultural recovery, Ebola recovery program um, and livelihoods, we have a Ebola widows um, protection program, we have a young girls protection program, and we have our overall uh, SGBV protection program. We have a couple health grants with UNICEF, uh, Scaling Up Nutrition, and another program that is linked with the Ministry of Health uh, to build the capacity at the county level. And we also have a couple UNICEF grants, actually one just UNICEF grant right now um, in protection, and it's working with adolescent girls mostly, but there are some adolescent boys there too. I'm just looking behind me on my whiteboard with all our projects. <laughs> missed uh, sounds like a huge wealth of, uh, of projects you're engaged in. Which one of those really, really excites you the most? Uh... The one that excites me the most is actually the one I missed, ironically. Um, it's our, <laughs> we call it our SPICE program. It's our Samaritan's Purse Integrated Community Empowerment. And it's run by our, our community development facilitators, our CDFs, which I, I think maybe you might remember. And basically we have uh, staff members, two staff members that oversee a cluster of communities, anywhere between three to five communities. And they live in one of those communities and they facilitate trainings in um, leadership training. We have trauma healing uh, through the American Bible Society, THI, for Ebola or post-war um, trauma. Mm. And we also do a discipleship evangelism course. Uh, what kind of change do you see happening in people through that program? I think the big thing is, is leadership, um, ironically. You know, they, there's not a lot of good examples of leadership in Liberia, okay. if I can say that. Yeah. And 
when they learn about leadership is actually about serving your people to the people serving you, mm. it just really just is a huge paradigm shift. Mm. Um, so that's been really exciting to hear some of the testimonials of mm. leaders saying, you know what, I always thought you know, my, my community should be doing everything for me, but I need to be more engaged with my community and then taking ownership of that community. Mm. Um, a lot of times that, that's in a practical way of the, the leader or um, say one of the leaders of the, the women's group saying we're going to do a cleanup day on Saturday um, and cleaning up their village, picking up garbage, whatever it may be. Um, it could be raising money and taking charge and building a community center for themselves or a church with no SP uh, resources given. It's all themselves. Um, and so it all depends on your leaders, but that program also too has turned into a program where families will come to the CDFs if they're having marriage problems or if their children are uh, gone or if there's some sort of um, problem um, or tension or fight in the village, the CDFs have really become um, part of the reconciliation process, bringing the parties together with the leadership of the village, but as an outsider with nothing you know, to gain from e either side uh, to reconcile and restore a lot of relationships unbelievable amount of testimonies of families just saying if it wasn't for the CDFs you know I would have kept beating my wife um, I would have I still be an alcoholic mm. uh, you know I would have left my children um, but the CDFs have, have showed me something different and usually that means they've showed me Jesus mm. um, in some way mm. so it must be really inspiring to see that at a local community level and to see leaders stepping up to to serve their communities and then seeing the kind of transformation that can happen through literacy programs and clean water coming and, and education coming to the village. Um, you, you must get buoyed by that and encouraged by that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's some days that that's honestly what keeps me going. Because <laughs> unfortunately, you know, sometimes I get stuck in the office reading through reports and budgets. I mean, you know what it's like yeah, sometimes. Yeah. And I know we'll just kind of go, you know what, I need to get back up to FOIA or I need to get to the field <laughs> and just see here and sit with my staff and and hear those testimon testimonials instead of just having to read them. Um, and I think that's, that's definitely a huge motivator. Yeah, Let, let's get really practical, uh, Bev. You know, on a day-to-day -day basis, how, how does your faith really impact what you're doing? You know, lots of people say, well, I read my Bible and I pray. And But how does your faith, where does the rubber hit the road for you in terms of your faith really impacting your day-to-day -day actions and your day-to-day -day interactions with staff and, and the kind of work that you're doing? That's a good question. I think for me, where the rubber meets the road is where's my identity? and what are my motives. Okay. Um, I, learned a, I learned a very, very tough lesson during Ebola where I thought I knew where I, my identity was. I thought I knew my identity was in Christ, but when everything all of a sudden is taken from you and you don't know if you'll ever get it back, that's something that you never forget. And if you don't learn from that, then you're a fool. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, since that time, there's been an incredible freedom to know that first and foremost, and for all I care, the only thing is, is that I'm a daughter of the king. Mm. And so when I'm making decisions, it's not an ego thing. It's not a, uh, trying to prove myself. It's not putting false expectations on my staff. It's letting them first and foremost know that their identity is in Christ. Mm. And when you understand that, 
and are able to grasp that. And again, it's a daily struggle sometimes. There's an absolute freedom that is serving mm. because it's not about you. Mm. And if everything was taken away, it doesn't matter. Mm. That identity can never be taken away. Mm. And I think that probably, unfortunately, and I, I regret that it took me, you know, what, my first 15 years of being overseas to really get a, and an incredible crisis, probably the worst crisis of my life, to really have that right smack in front of my face mm -hmm. and for the Lord to say, where, where is your identity? Is it me or is it SP Liberia? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think for me, that has completely shifted um, my thought process mm -hmm. every day with every interaction. Mm -hmm. That's incredibly powerful. You talk about freedom. In what way does freedom impact you every day? I think that freedom um, impacts me every day in the sense I don't have to worry that I'm making a decision or making a wrong decision. If I'm seeking God, if I'm collaborating with my staff and we make a decision to understand that that's not going to make or break me as an employee, as a person, but my success isn't going to change my identity in Christ. My identity in Christ has been set. It was set at the cross when I deserved death and hell and was given life. Mm. Whether I'm successful in my job or not, whether I make every right decision or every wrong decision, mm. whether I fail or not does not change that identity. Mm. And being able to live in that freedom takes a lot of pressure, extreme amount of pressure off me, even in regards to my future. You know, lots yeah. of times people will ask, well, what, what are Bev and Kendall doing after Liberia? What are you leaving? It's sometimes, you know, people just ask that. And I'm just like, I, I don't know, but I've, I'm completely fine with it. I mean, I have some ideas, but I feel complete freedom. Um, yeah. Where maybe in the past, I'd be a little bit more scared. You know, this is where we've been now for 13 years. And even though it's a hard country to live in, it's become home. And you don't want to get, you know, too comfortable, per se. But at the same time... Um, you want to be able to adhere to the Holy Spirit and where God's leading you. That's incredibly powerful and I resonate with it strongly. And although I've not been through anything to the extent of crisis that uh, yourself and Kendall have been through in, in dealing with Ebola, uh, it is my experience that leaders who face up to the dark night of the soul, who face up to uh, failure and actually are able to come through that with a deeper sense of identity and a deeper sense of who they are in God, do have a remarkable freedom. Uh, to be themselves and uh, I, if only we didn't have to go through those experiences absolutely now tell me about the Ebola crisis um, and your involvement in it how how did you first become aware that there was a problem um, we had heard in March of 2014 of um, some cases in Guinea and then um, I think there was a couple of cases that came over the border of FOIA. One of them actually ended up reaching down here to Firestone. And so, you know, we started doing a lot of awareness, um, shifted our programming to emphasize Ebola awareness. Some of us uh, dependents and children were evacuated just for precaution. Um, and so that's how I first became aware of it. When we came back in May, everything seemed to be clear for Liberia. 
uh, for May and the majority of June, and I believe it was June 11th that uh, Dr. Brantley, uh, Kent, one of our good friends, um, called Kendall and just said, I think I have an Ebola patient at Elwa. And then from there, uh, things just, in every, in every way, just spiraled down. And what was, what was the worst moment during that crisis and, and how did it feel? Yeah, I, I don't know if I could put into words how it felt just because it was so like nothing I'd ever experienced before. Um, it, there was a lot of low points to the point where I just didn't even think about how much lower we could go or I could go. I think for me, there's probably a few, a couple low points. Um, unfortunately, my job as a hygienist and the lead hygienist was obviously overseeing the water supply, our chlorine solutions, making sure the waste management was taken care of, the burns of our um, equipment and, and suits that had to be disposed of in a safe fashion, um, making sure all the buckets uh, had chlorine in them. Um, but also a big part of that, of course, is dead body management, which was not something that we usually do in WASH, of course. Um, yeah. And not being a medical person, <laughs> not like I've been around um, death um, very often. So I think probably one of my, some of my lowest points were during those times where it was my job to prepare a body safely, to protect others, protect myself. But I was the last person that a, a, a person saw, and I was a stranger in a suit. And you just, you feel for the family, you feel for them, you can see the fear and the hopelessness in their eyes. Um, and I think some of those images will always be burned into my mind and soul. Um, I think probably one of the lowest also too was the July 26th, uh, Liberian Independence Day, when I had to get up pretty early, about five or six and um, Dr. Natalie McDermott and myself went and took a test for Nancy and then we went to Kent's place and got his final blood test, his second one that would prove to be positive and then um, we headed up to the unit thinking it was going to be a quiet day because of the holiday and it was still dark and there was an ambulance at the confirmed side, an ambulance at the suspect side and I think that whole morning all I did was move bodies. Um, I'd go in for almost an hour to an hour and a half, come out replenish with fluids and a pack of M&Ms, get clearance from a doctor or a nurse to go back in, go back in, move more bodies, more bodies are dying now, you know, uh, decontaminate out and just kept going and going and going and I remember walking out once and looking at um, our, our deputy country director, Joni Biker, a close friend, and just being so overwhelmed, her and John Freiler were there uh, from Samaritan's Purse Ministry. Um, coordinator and I was just like, I just, I remember saying to them that it's like the gates of hell in there mm. and I just was numb. Mm. And then to end that day, Adam, um, Kendall had called me um, at the unit as I was just getting cleaned up to come and he said, I need you and Joey to come to the office and he had just gotten a text about Kent's um, status that he had Ebola and also Nancy, and so the three of us were just together. And the realization then that Kendall and us had to now go face our staff and SIM staff, our friends, our family, mm. and tell them probably the most devastating news that our team has ever had to hear or ever will hear. Mm. Um, and just being in that moment was 
I mean, I, I, yeah, my heart still beats like through my chest when I think about it. Yeah. Um, it just seems very surreal now, looking back but at the time. It was surreal in the sense of, I cannot believe this is happening. Mm -hmm. um, and then that overwhelming hopelessness and fear started to set in, like nothing I've experienced before. Mm -hmm. And pray and vow I will never feel again. Mm -hmm. um, I'm being stalked by a killer. Mm -hmm. um, and knowing that I had to go back into the unit, knowing that my job, I had been exposed to the Ebola virus every day, hours upon hours every day, um, really hit home. And what, what were the people who kept you going during those darkest moments? I think our team, mm -hmm. we had an incredible team. I think we had MSF people who, even though organizationally were probably very opposite in a lot of ways, but I, I honestly believe that God orchestrated that those specific people from MSF be with us specific people here. Mm -hmm at Snurgis First Liberia and the DART team. Mm. There's a bond that we all have yeah. that is still very strong. Yeah. And it's very, it's very sacred. Mm. Um, and so I think we just, had to, we just had to keep telling each other. Remember one person just kept on saying every single day, like, he still sits in the throne. Mm. And I had to believe that because mm. I knew if I didn't believe that, even though everything in me didn't want to believe it, mm. I was done. Mm. I, I knew I'd be done in every sense of the way. Mm. Um, and so I think you just, there's something when crisis hits and you can go shoulder to shoulder with people who are willing to fight. Mm. Um, you can see how um, just the unity and camaraderie in, in the military is so important. Because yeah. that's what it felt like. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah, I think it's, it's our team. Um, it's the amount of people that were praying for us all over the world, including obviously yourself and the UK office and all of SP and churches and family, um, complete strangers I'd get emails from. Um, and it was just, it was overwhelming. It was unbelievably humbling. And so you just knew you had to just keep fighting. And, and yet you, you chose after a time out of Liberia to actually go back and serve the people of Liberia? What, what was going through your mind as you were making that decision to go back and serve and, and re-enter and, and engage in, you know, now being back there since 2014 uh, for the last two, three years? What was going through your mind in that, in that process? I think for me, it was very hard for me to leave um, at the end of July um, to, to leave our staff. I felt like I was betraying them to leave, even Kent and Nancy, even though they were going to be evacuated. And I'm, so I, I, I'm kind of laughing because, Simon, you know me, <laughs> I have a little bit of a stubborn streak and fighter in me. <laughs> so I just needed to get back into that ring. I was just like, I will not let this defeat me. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like how you feel at mile 25 in the London Marathon. <laughs> <laughs> Everything in you and even people are telling, telling you you're crazy, but you're just like, I'm going to finish this. Yeah. And I think, too, because I knew that we had been through the worst of it and God had been so faithful, I was still very much riding that faithfulness um, wave of confidence that it doesn't matter what happens. I think this is where my identity and freedom started to really sprout. And I needed to be convinced even more so, but I knew that that convincing would only come by returning and facing facing it again. Um, and I came back as team lead, which was very overwhelming. 
Um, I think it might have been the first female team lead for SP, I'm not sure. <laughs> but I just, I don't think I thought about the position as much as I thought about, you know, being back with my team and helping them fight. I knew everyone, our national staff, had just been fighting so hard and they were tired. Mm -hmm. And I wanted them to know that um, I personally had not abandoned them. I'm, I wanted to come back so that they would know I have your back, we're in this together still, let's keep pushing. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Every night and every morning I read um, Psalm 91 and Ephesians 6 out loud. Wow. Uh, I was living by myself. Wow. The only thing I could touch was our cat. But I literally would read it out loud to convince myself every morning, wow. every night. That's incredibly powerful. And, and as you um, now kind of look forward um, uh, to the future for Liberia and uh, your hope for the Liberian people, what, what would that be? I think my hope for the Liberian people would be for them to really, like all of us, through crisis when we are completely on our knees, don't wait for a crisis to be on your knees and turn to God and ask for help, for His guidance. You know, He is, he is there. If we would just, you know, submit ourselves to Him, that's what He wants. And that's then we can walk in that freedom to realize our potential that He is giving us, to realize His will. And my prayer would be that the Liberian people would would see that and that their eyes would be open to his goodness and his love for all that they've been through and the resilience that they have. If they would do that, not only would they be an incredible country full of potential, but man, what a revival. What a revival you could have in this small little country of West Africa. And that's what I would like to see more than anything. That's an incredible hope and um, Bev thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast thank you for being so uh, transparent and, and honest about uh, everything you've been through and um, thank you for inspiring us as well uh, Bev Capolt thanks so much thank you very much Simon thanks for listening each week we bring you informative encouraging and challenging interviews with leaders around the world on issues of character integrity and identity you can subscribe on iTunes by searching for Forge Leadership Podcast or by visiting forge-leadership.com.